Section 5 of The Book of Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The Book of Wales by Frank Evers Bedard. Chapter 2 Some Internal Structures. Part 1 Vertebral Column. The series of bones which constitute the vertebral column or backbone in the whales offer a number of peculiarities distinctive of the group. Like all other mammals, with inconsiderable exceptions, manatee, sloth, the neck vertebrae are but seven in all. But in the whales, these vertebrae are very generally partially or entirely fused together, the degree of fusion also varying from species to species. Hand in hand with this melting together of the vertebrae goes a thinning of the actual vertebrae themselves, so that the neck region of the cetacea is excessively short. They are the shortest necked of all mammals. It is, however, important to emphasize the fact that the mysterious and perfect number seven, which characterizes all mammals, with the very few exceptions already noted, is preserved in these exceedingly short-necked creatures. It is by a reduction of the individual vertebrae, not by a dropping out of one or more in the series, that the neck is reduced in length. At first sight, it is tempting to put down the remarkable consolidation of these neck vertebrae to the necessity for holding up the heavy head of the great whales. And it is undoubtedly a fact that in the right whales and in the huge-headed physeter, these peculiarities are seen in as exaggerated a form as anywhere. On the other hand, we must set against this the fact that in the great rorquals there is usually a freedom between these vertebrae, which in some species is complete. A further consideration of the variations in the degree of fusion between the cervical vertebrae seems to point to the conclusion that the peculiarity is one which is, as it were, gaining ground. For the platanistidae, which some other considerations lead us to regard as among the most primitive of existing cetaceans, have all these vertebrae quite free. Between this extremity and that offered by the right whales are almost every possible step in the fusion of the individual bones. Some, for instance, have two, three, etc. fused and the rest free. In fact, it seems difficult to explain this anomalous state of affairs by any adaptation to a particular need nor is it possible to seek for any explanation of the peculiarity by looking for its occurrence in any possible allies of the whales. If it were suggested that the Cyrenia are creatures which are, so to speak, on the way to become whales, which connect the whales with the terrestrial ungulates, it might be urged that here, at any rate, is a trace of the same fusion of the neck vertebrae, for in the manatee two of these vertebrae are thus fused but we have, on the same hand, the armadillos, where the same thing precisely occurs. And even in another group of vertebrates altogether, the hornbill offers an example of a bird in which two of the cervical vertebrae are fused. We shall deal presently with some facts in which the dugongs and manatees resemble the whales, but this view of the relationships of the whales is not one which at the present day commends itself to naturalists. It is a curious fact, however, that one of the most remarkable peculiarities of one of these Cyrenia, the manatee, i.e., the dropping of one cervical vertebra already referred to, is hinted at in certain whales. The late Dr. Gray used as a specific, and even as a generic, character 
the fact that in some whales the first rib is a double structure looking like two ribs melted together and that one part of this double rib is attached to the last cervical vertebra this looks like a commencing dropping out of the last cervical vertebra from its own proper series it has been partly at any rate transferred to the ensuing dorsal row another cyrenian feature in the cervical vertebrae of the whales is the slenderness of the cervical series this is seen not in the manatee but in the recently extinct ritina of bering straits in that animal however the vertebrae are not in the least degree fused in all mammals with the exception of the whales the atlas is peculiar in that its centrum has broken loose and has attached itself to the following vertebrae the axis or epistopheus from whose centrum it projects as the odontoid process in whales as a rule this process is entirely wanting but it is a significant fact that the most considerable rudiments of it exist in platanista and among the platanistidae upon whose probably basal position among the cetacea we have already commented the dorsal vertebrae among these animals are of course those which bear ribs and their number varies much from species to species or from genus to genus nine to sixteen are the limits of variation the curious divergences in the mode of articulation of the ribs serve to divide the cetacea and under the description of the sperm whale the anea and some other types the differences are dealt with it has been pointed out that the cetacea differ from the sirenia by the fact that the latter have but few lumbar vertebrae while in the cetacea these same vertebrae are very numerous but in inea there are only three a number which is repeated in the manatee in this connection it is interesting to recall the fact that in ritina the most cetacean of the sirenia the lumbar region has increased to six vertebrae as the pelvis is so rudimentary a structure it is not surprising to find that there is no sacrum no lumbar vertebrae are fused to make the complex and firm massive bone which in terrestrial creatures supports the arch of the hind limbs as there is no sacrum it would seem at first a little difficult to define the commencement of the caudal series of vertebrae practically there is a difficulty owing to the frequent incompleteness of skeletons in museums but theoretically there is none since the first caudal is provided below with a v-shaped appendage of bone the intercentrum or chevron bone professor delage has also pointed out that in balanoptera musculus at any rate the lumbar series is defined by the termination opposite to the last one of the abdominal cavity in terrestrial mammals there is not as a rule much give in the backbone they cannot wriggle their bodies to any great extent the reason for this is clearly the desirability of a firm support for the limbs by which locomotion is effected this is brought about not only by the fusion of the vertebrae in the region of attachment of the hind limbs to form the sacrum already mentioned but elsewhere in the series the successive vertebrae are locked together by special joints which allowing of a certain amount of movement curtail that movement within very narrow bounds in some edentate animals ant-eater sloth these usual joints are increased by the presence of supplementary articulations between successive vertebrae which renders the backbone of the creatures in question a much more rigid rod than it is in the majority of mammals now to the whale an eminently flexible backbone is obviously a desideratum 
It moves mainly by powerful strokes of the tail, and of the hind part of the body generally. Hence, we find that the interlocking joints, the zygopophyses as they are technically termed, are much reduced, and indeed do not exist at all in the hinder part of the series, where their presence would interfere with the necessary undulations of body by means of which the whale forces its way through the water. Furthermore, a large development of the discs of fibrous tissue which lie between the centra of the vertebrae adds efficiency to this important part of the whale's skeleton. It is interesting to note that in Platanista, so frequently referred to as an archaic type of cetacean, the interlocking of the vertebrae is much more marked than in other forms. The sternum. All whales possess a sternum or breastbone, but the form of this bone, or series of bones as it actually is in many forms, varies, and the variations concern us in the present chapter, inasmuch as they bear upon the broad lines of modification which these aquatic mammals have undergone in their gradual change and adaptation to a life in the ocean. The typical mammalian breastbone consists of a number of separate pieces of bone, often spoken of as sternobrae, and forming a row along the middle line of the breast. Between each of these separate bones is inserted a rib. The number of pieces out of which the sternum is formed is sometimes very large. As many as 14 elements occur in the sloth, colopus, for example. Among the toothed whales, the sternum shows what we must regard from a comparison with land mammals as the most primitive conditions. In Berardius, for example, this sternum consists of five pieces placed end-to-end, -end, and these bear facets for six ribs. A very interesting feature of this sternum is to be seen in the fact that it is not only distinctly bifid behind, but that it is also somewhat incomplete in the middle line, gaps being left in the dried skeleton, from which probably pieces of cartilage have dropped out. Now the interest of what seems to be a mere detail of anatomy is this. The sternum of mammals is developed from a fusion between the lower ends of the growing ribs. It is at first in two longitudinal pieces, and the ossification, the conversion into bone, of this cartilage is also double. Paired centers of the deposition of bony matter appearing. Thus, in Berardius and in other forms, distinct traces of the original paired state of affairs are left. In other toothed whales, the number of pieces composing the sternum is reduced. In Mesoplodon, there may be only four, and in the sperm whale there are but three pieces. Moreover, in this latter whale, the double character of the sternum is especially obvious. Two of the three pieces out of which it is composed are paired bones, while the last shows some indications of a longitudinal division into two. A further shortening of the sternum is exhibited in the cachalot by the fact that there are only four ribs which reach it. These three types of cetaceans seem to show that there has been a progressive shortening of the sternum. But the facts are not, it is hardly necessary to point out, conclusive, as a demonstration of this probability. More certain evidence is afforded by the actual stages of development of the breastbone of the common porpoise. In this whale, the actual proportions of the sternum during growth to the adult condition have been found to lessen in a marked fashion which leaves no doubt that here, at least, the sternum is a part of the skeleton which is shrinking. The extreme of the shrinkage of the sternum is realized in the whalebone whales, in which we have seen, and shall see, so many grounds for regarding as in many respects the most modified of whales. 
In these animals, the sternum is reduced to a single piece, which is heart-shaped in the Balina australis, and sometimes cross-shaped in the Rorquals. More generally, it has in these latter cetaceans the form of a T. With the sternum in these whales articulates but one pair of ribs, the first. It is a matter of interest to inquire into the exact nature of this simple bone, which is all that is left of the sternum in the Mystacoceti. In many mammals, the sternum in the adult is no more than a single solid bone. But here, the apparent simpleness of the sternum is due to the co-ossification of originally separate elements. The articulation of several pairs of ribs is a clue to the number of these elements. Now, as in the right whale and the rorquals, but one pair of ribs articulates with the small sternum, we should infer that it is the front piece of the sternum, that piece which has been fancifully termed the manubrium, the handle of the sword-shaped sternum. It may be remarked here that the end piece of the sternum is generally called the prosthesis ensiformis, or ensiform piece, thus completing the analogy derived from the comparison with the sword. It is extremely important to notice that there is evidence here, too, that the shortening of the sternum has really taken place, and that comparatively recently. In the first place, Sir William Turner found that in that giant among giants, the huge workwall, Balanoptera sibaldi, a second piece of sternum identified by him with the ensiform cartilage, or xiphus sternum as it is sometimes called, and, in the second place, the well-known cytologist, the late Professor Eschricht of Copenhagen, found in a whalebone whale that a fibrous band arising from the end of the sternum was attached to the second and third ribs. This is clearly a rudiment of a posterior prolongation of the sternum. The question now becomes pressing. Is this shortening of the sternum a character of whales unconnected with anything in particular, or is it related to the aquatic life? The answer to this question is to be derived from two sources. We have first the argument from analogy. We can consider how far, if at all, the same kind of change has gone on in other aquatic creatures. The seals and sea lions do not help us in the very least, but then it must be borne in mind that they are comparatively recent inhabitants of the water. The Cyrenia, on the other hand, offer us a precisely similar series of stages. The Morskaya Korova, Stellar's sea cow, or Rytina gigas, had five pairs of ribs reaching the sternum, the dugong of eastern seas but four, while in the manatee the ribs are reduced to three pairs. The sternum, too, in these animals, is naturally reduced in correspondence with the failing attachment of the ribs. But it is somewhat contradictory to bear in mind that the first two genera, the least modified as regards ribs, have a crescentric tail more like that of whales, while in other particulars referred to on other pages, Rytina is more whale-like than either of its congeners. To go to quite another group, to which we have often had occasion to refer in dwelling upon the peculiarities of whales, the Ichthysaurians were devoid of a sternum, at least of an ossified one, and the same statement holds good for the pleosaurs. There would seem, therefore, to be some connection between the aquatic life and an absent or rudimentary sternum. Dr. Moeller, however, would answer the question, which we asked some lines above, in another fashion. He is of the opinion that the whalebone whales breathe more with the thoracic musculature and less with the diaphragm than do the toothed whales. 
the diaphragm in them is not so purely muscular an organ as it is in those toothed whales in which it has been examined hence the greater part of the exertions requisite for inspiration are thrown upon the muscles of the trunk the freedom of the ribs and a consequent shortening of the sternum is favorable to this supposed increased activity it is also ingeniously suggested by the same authority that the whalebone whales pursuing as they do minute prey instead of the comparatively large cuttlefish eaten by the bulk of the toothed whales have to remain longer under water before they can obtain a sufficient supply of their food the freedom of the ribs etc not only allows of a greater extensibility of the alimentary canal but a greater expansion of the lungs and in consequence a greater indraft of air whatever may be the explanation however the facts are as stated the skull the most obvious and the most remarkable feature of the whale's skull is its asymmetry in the toothed whales so unintelligible does this aberration from what is normal in mammals appear to be that it has even been suggested that the peculiarity was originally a pathological state of affairs caused by injury and that a one-sided face has been the consequent inheritance one associates symmetry with vertebrate animals and so especially with aquatic ones swimming head foremost through the water that symmetry would seem to be their most necessary attribute it must be borne in mind however that the asymmetry is not nearly so apparent in the head when clothed with flesh but the sperm whale is markedly asymmetrical in the single s-shaped blowhole this absence of symmetry in the skull affects especially the premaxillae and the nasals the latter indeed are often reduced to a single very small bone there is one toothed whale in which the asymmetry of the skull is not so hard to understand that is of course the narwhal with its one rarely two tusk projecting in front this one-sided development could be readily imagined as having affected to a considerable degree the neighboring parts of the skull but we cannot assume that other toothed whales are the offspring of narwhal-like forms though it is certainly true that the narwhal is in some respects a primitive whale it is easier to say that the asymmetry being as it is chiefly developed in the regions of the blowholes has something to do with those structures than to find any adequate reason for connecting the two footnote of course the unsymmetrical head of the flatfish is not in any way comparable in those fishes it is related to the fact that the sides of the body are used as dorsal and ventral surface respectively end of footnote seen from the ventral surface the whale's skull is quite symmetrical this is the case even with kogia and physeter which are the most asymmetrical of whales above it is important to note that in the fetus the asymmetry is less marked than in the adult this leads us to the conclusion that the singular deformity of the head which characterizes the toothed whales is at least comparatively speaking a new development the whale's skull also offers us an excellent instance of how great a departure from the typical appearance of an organ may be produced without any real change in its structure there are no bones in the skull that are not found in other mammals and none of the bones found in other mammals are wanting and yet the skull as a whole departs widely in general appearance from that of other mammals the brain case proper is relatively small and the snout the facial portion of the skull is very elongated the degree of elongation varying from genus to genus 
It is most developed, perhaps, in the extinct Urinodelphus, apparently a platinistid, of which a figure is appended. The toothed whales, in fact, embody the extremes of shortening and elongation of the facial region of the skull. Thus it is very short in Orcella, in Kogia, and in a few others. Several of the individual bones show peculiarities, of which some will be mentioned in the present general account of the whale's skull. The parietals deserve their name, for they are really walls to the skull and not a covering also, as in other mammals. This, at any rate, applies to the majority. In the extinct Zuglodonts, which in many other respects conform to a more generalized mammalian condition, these bones are, so to speak, normal. But among the toothed whales, they do not meet above, and the part of the roof of the skull, which should be occupied by the parietals, is invaded by the huge supraoccipital. This does not, however, apply to the whalebone whales, though it appears to do so. In these whales, the fetus has normal parietals meeting above. In the adult, the upper portion of the bones is overlaid by the supraoccipitals. We have here the first stage in the disappearance of the median portion of the parietals. Being overlaid by the supraoccipitals, their function ceases, and in accordance with what is always found in nature, being useless, they disappear. The enormous size of the supraoccipital bone reduces the size of the frontals with which it articulates. The latter are very narrow above where they form the forehead, and expand below where they protect the small orbit from above. The premaxillary bones are remarkable for two peculiarities. In the first place, they do not, except in some of the extinct forms, zuglodonts, bear any teeth, but in the second place, instead of having degenerated in bulk in consequence, they are greatly increased. They stretch backwards and touch, or indeed partly cover, the frontals. The small size of the nasals, which are almost rudimentary in all existing whales, and especially so in the odontocetes, permits this junction to be effected. Laterally, these premaxillary bones are ensheathed by the maxillae, a feature very characteristic of the whales, that is to say, of existing forms. The maxillae also cover over the frontals, and in some odontocetes are greatly crested on their dorsal surface a feature which is carried to a maximum in Hyperodon and in the Gangetic Platinista. The bones related to the organ of hearing are extremely strong and stony in the whale tribe. They are imperfectly attached, as a rule, to the surrounding portions of the skull, and are thus readily detachable. They are often found in a fossil condition quite separate. The tympanic bone has a shell-like form, not unlike a cowrie, it is not always firmly attached to the periodic, which ensheaths the actual organ of hearing. Some other peculiarities of the skull bones of cetacea are dealt with under the description of the different families. End of section 5. Recording by Colleen McMahon.